Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. First up, there was a new Livebook release with an important security fix, specifically for Livebook desktop users on Windows. What it is, the desktop protocol handler, protocol handlers are those special things where it's like FTP colon slash slash. In this case, it was Livebook colon slash slash. It allowed for arbitrary code execution. That was specifically only on Windows, though, so make sure to get your update there. I find protocol handlers pretty fascinating, which, by the way, just fun fact, these are what powers deep links on like mobile devices, too. All right, next up, Jose Valim shared where we can find past Twitch videos. All right, so he was doing a, a stream a day for a while to talk about Livebook and a bunch of different you know, topics. And the first couple of days, I think they weren't saved. <laughs> and so we, I, I took that to mean that like, oh, this is just natural Twitch stuff, right? You don't really persist those videos. You, you save like clips or highlights or something. Well, they learned that too, maybe on day three, I think. So all of his videos are now being saved under highlights. The whole thing is a highlight. <laughs> so we got a link to it in the show notes. So if you're curious and want to rewatch some of those, again, they're meant for like live streaming, right? So they're not like condensed YouTube style videos where you can watch it in a, in, in a five minute setting or something. These are like hours long. But anyway, we got a link to those. So go check it out. And next up, Elixir 1.15.0, which we announced previously had come out and was released. It had some issues compiling the Erlang dependency SSL verify fun. It's a fun name, right? Like that you're verifying that you can have fun, I guess. But <laughs> but it was it was not working well. It was not compiling. And I actually ran into this myself. And just wanted to point out for anyone who is also seeing this, if you haven't already found a solution, then go check out the Elixir forum thread where they have some workarounds for how to get around it. Hopefully it'll just be resolved and won't be any issue going forward. I haven't retried it since then. At the moment, I was like, well, you know, I'm just going to stick with 114. I didn't need anything in 115 at the time. And I just needed to keep going with my project. So yeah. I imagine there's a number of other people who may have encountered that same aspect of like, oh, I'll come back and try this later. I think that function comes when you're using like Hackney or, or something like that. So it's pretty common in most projects. All right. Next up, uh, there's a new decision tree library. So previously, Sean Moriarty shared uh, that someone was working on a decision tree support for NX. And hey, maybe this is it. I think this is it. Like this is the one that he was talking about. I don't know. It doesn't matter. The library is called Mockingj. It is an implementation of Microsoft's Hummingbird decision tree compilation algorithms. When it's paired with NX serving, Elixir now has a production-grade decision tree model serving. If you're curious of what a decision tree kind of looks like in ML kind of uh, worlds, it just means that like you've got a bunch of decision points and NX and this algorithm is a way of traveling that tree to find the final decision at the bottom. It's a prediction. A lot of these logical branches that creates the tree, they are reduced to matrices, right? And the, the likelihood of the path traveled is the prediction uh, at the end. Anyway, library is called Mockingjay. Decision trees are actually pretty helpful in business worlds too. So this is like a good, a good, like useful library, <laughs> like a, a good way to like enter into the NX world, I think for like normal business people and <laughs> not academics or researchers or something. So this is pretty interesting to look at. And next up, the EEF or Erlang Ecosystem Foundation approved the creation of a new working group. The working group is called Libraries and Frameworks. 
Uh, I just wanted to read a little bit from their mission statement for what this particular working group is focused on. It says they are to provide resources for library and framework authors to ensure that Beam languages have a rich, vibrant ecosystem with a high degree of developer experience. And they also to provide and maintain best practices on library and framework standardization, documentation, code, and distribution, and also collaborate on and make proposals for underlying tooling that improve the experience for library and framework authors and users. So maybe we should have a more centralized way of coordinating and pooling resources and best practices and and support for people who are working on core libraries. And I noticed that Zach Daniel was involved with the creation of this working group. And of course, he is the author of the ASH framework. So he has a vested interest in this group existing. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know if they've come out with any points yet, but one of my points on there could be in all these libraries and frameworks to have a HTTP library like shim or something. Don't don't ship your own HTTP library in there like like HTTP poison or or Tesla or or Finch or Mint or <laughs> HTTP C or whatever. Like don't do one of those. Don't force me to use one of those. Allow me to configure that or something. <laughs> so it'll be one of those points on there. Maybe I should be part of this this little group. <laughs> all right. Well, speaking of Zach Daniel and his you know, uh, maintainership of, of Ash framework 2.11 RC is out. So that's a good milestone for them for Ash framework. This includes the initial release of, of field policies and field policies complement Ash's existing record level policy authorization, allowing for a simple and expressive way to conditionally forbid access to fields. So very nice little auth Z functionality there. Ash is a very good framework for quickly spitting out these resource-based kinds of applications. So wonderful to see that progress out there. I've often needed that kind of authorization policy too, so I'm glad to see that. And from the library and frameworks working group, there was a list of members. I also noticed that Michael Crum was listed as a member, and next to his name was the library briefly, and I was just associated there. And I was like, I don't, I don't know what that is. So I looked it up, and it's a library for simple, robust, temporary file support in Elixir. I just thought it was really cool because it's tied to a process. So like I, I have a process maybe that's handling a request and I can have my process create a temporary file. And as soon as my process dies or goes away or closes, it automatically cleans up the temporary file. I thought that was a really cool way to link up file system stuff to processes. And it's not a new library by any means. It's been around for some time, but I thought it was cool. I hadn't seen it before. And so just wanted to pass that along. Isaac Yanomoto has released 0.1 of his open API router called Apical. I'm going with that pronunciation. Who who knows? Uh, what this is, is uh, open API has a way of specifying a list of routes and parameters and all that kind of stuff. Can use it with like with cloud services. You just upload your open API spec. And that is the list of routes and parameters that that like gateway will ex- will forward to like your application, for example, like AWS. I think a lot of them have this. So the way that this library works is that you give it either a string of that open API, like a YAML declaration, or better yet, you read it from a committed file. 
and it generates the routes for you. Does a lot of things like it tags inbound requests with the API version. It constructs the route and HTTP verbs. It uh, handles cookies, headers, path params, query params, parameter marshaling, parameter validation, request body validation, like content length and content type validation, matching content type and all sorts of things. Wow, it does a lot and handles a lot of that boilerplate code. And that's what this is all about. Open API specs is about boilerplate router specifications. Just declare it in a YAML and, you know, deal with it. And now this library helps you deal with it in a uh, boilerplate free way in Elixir. So very nice. And next up, Mitch Hanberg is sharing some early progress with his next LS project. So we talked with Mitch before about language servers in Elixir, and he started work on this one called Next LS. He set up a page to highlight and show off some of the things that he's got working now. So it's still very early. This isn't something you're going to just jump in and start using right now. It's not fully integrated, but it's pretty cool because he's showing some of these early core functionality of what it's able to do, like listing functions that are available that are core Elixir ones that are part of your project, code formatting, and things like that. Just showing that he's making actual real progress on this and it's it's a real thing. So I'm really excited to see as this goes forward, it's something we'll be interested in following the progress of. I suspect a little conference-driven development might be happening here. <laughs> we'll see. All right, last up, Patrick Smith shared a sneak peek of a new library called Orb. An Orb is a friendly DSL for writing Elixir code and compiling to WebAssembly. Mm, we haven't talked about WebAssembly in a while. Uh, at the time of this recording, the working source code is embedded in a different open source application. So he's, I, I think he's working on splitting it out. We'll have to look forward to what's, what's going on there. And for, for context, Patrick Smith is, has uh, several websites focused on teaching front-end code, React, TypeScript kind of stuff. So it's interesting to see the library here from Elixir's perspective to like make a backend server work with this, I, I presume. So I'm curious to see how this evolves. But yeah, nice to see WebAssembly in, in the realm again. And that's it for the news. Elixir and Phoenix are incredible. They make it possible to quickly build highly resilient and reliable systems capable of operating at incredible scale. Fly.io is a great place to host Elixir apps. You can deploy your app to multiple regions around the world with a private network linking them all together so your app can cluster and globally do some incredible Phoenix magic. Give your users a more responsive UI while writing less code and moving the app closer to your users without needing an ops team. Check out fly.io for your next Elixir app. Today we're being joined by our special guest, Steve Bussey. Steve, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here and talking with y'all. Awesome. Well, I wanted to talk to you because I saw that you're working on a new book that's actually available in beta right now. It's called From Ruby to Elixir. That's an interesting topic. Just the idea of wanting to help court a specific group of developers who might be interested in Elixir and help them ease into it, make the transition smoother. I think there's a, a lot of opportunities where we could do better with that. So I wanted to really learn about what it is you're trying to do here and just also just get a, a, an update on how things are going with you and what kind of things you're trying to do and solve. But before we do that, I just love to hear a little bit more about you. Like, where do you live and what kind of work are you doing now? Yeah, so I'm in Atlanta, Georgia. I've been here about eight years now. And I'm working on a new startup. I started back in October. We're called Supered, and we're focused on the HubSpot space and helping salespeople in HubSpot become superheroes, effectively. That's where the name comes from. 
For those of our listeners who maybe haven't heard you before, and maybe you're a little bit new to them, maybe you could tell us a little bit about how you came to Elixir, what your experiences were before and, and why you're still here in this community, what, what has drawn you here? Yeah, I really, I wish I had access to my old repos when I was at Sales Loft so I could see the date of when I started Elixir. I feel like it was probably like 2017 or, or something like there. Basically, I was at a company, SaaS company, and we were all Ruby. And I mean, I, I liked it a lot. I, I really enjoyed it. And I had a coworker who was sort of putting Elixir in our ears. He had seen it. He was hearing about it. And he was interested specifically in the runtime characteristics of it. And we did a little bit of stuff with telephony. We weren't like a telephony provider, but we did enough with it that there were some interesting use cases that he was wanting to explore. And I had some use cases that I wanted to explore around like real-time website analytics type stuff. We were like, hey, these are good projects for Elixir. Let's try it out. And we were like the guinea pigs, I guess, in the organization to say, all right, we're willing to take this on. It took about six months before we were finally at the point of like, all right, it's on the tech radar. We're in, like, I forget all the phases of it, but we were basically in the evaluation phase. We really liked it. We both did. And so over time, it became one of the blessed languages that you could start any new microservice on. It was a microservice-oriented architecture. So you could start a microservice in either Elixir or Ruby. And we had an answer for how you should build that so that it you know, has observability and it hooks into the rest of the system. And it there's some semblance of feeling the same. So you don't feel like you're getting thrown into a whole new world. And it was really successful. Different teams had, you know, different usage of Ruby versus Elixir. Some teams just always stayed Ruby and never looked at Elixir at all. And that was totally fine. And then you had other teams that only ever did Elixir. So I was on the team that only touched Elixir stuff for like two years. So it just, <laughs> you know, depended on what the team wanted to do. And one thing I'd add to that, just as a notice, I think it's relevant to the journey and, and why I wrote the book. When I started Elixir, I would say I was like semi new. I was like a few years into my professional journey, but I'd been around a little bit and I still, I just, I just struggled with some stuff and it took me like two or three attempts to get into it. Even though the docs were really good, it, it wasn't, it wasn't the content issue. It was just sort of like a mental model issue and it took me a few tries to get into it. And once I finally did, it was good. But that took like, I'd say there was like two false starts where I tried to pick it up and wasn't able to. And then before finally committing and, and getting into it fully. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I get that. Okay, and so the, the timeline's making sense. So if you started, or it looks for around 2017-ish, you had a couple of years to fix your mental model. And then by that time, it's, sounds like you helped fix that mental model for other folks as well. Not in a gen generic, like how, how to Elixir, but how to real time Phoenix. All right. So tell me about real time Phoenix here. What, what is that about? Yeah. So real time Phoenix is a book that I wrote. It's, it's also by pragmatic bookshelf. And I wrote this while I was at sales loft and it was a basically I mean, I guess you could say it was like written in anger a little bit. I was like doing a project of moving our basically our notifications for the app. We had a couple hundred billion notifications going out per day. And so moving that entire system into Elixir powered by Phoenix, powered by channels, and just that whole process and 
you know, I took down production a few times from like, not related to the channels, but related to other things that I hadn't thought about the ancillary things to building a real time system, especially when you're putting that real time system into a, a system that maybe doesn't have the same runtime characteristics. And like, if you're in a microservice architecture where there's other languages involved. And so the book was basically like a brain dump. It was really designed at mid-level elixirists and higher. I mean, you could start as a beginner not knowing channels and it would bring you along the whole way. But I also wanted to make sure I had content that was for people that had experience with channels that would just be like, oh, I haven't thought of it. I haven't seen this particular problem, but it's you know good to know about that before I really go into a big project. Gotcha. And so just to just to have like a high level review of that first book. So you're talking about WebSockets, you're talking about Phoenix channels, you talk about restricting access to those channels, performance, you know, tuning, some architecture on how to design some of these things. And then finally, kind of what is deploying look like how to cluster these these things together. These channels have to be knowledgeable about other nodes with other, you know, their own set of channels on there. Oh, and then how to connect that to a front end as well. So something like React. So that sounds that sounds great. And that was three years ago. And so I I know that three years ago was prior to Live View, and the whole world was different. <laughs> I'm, I'm curious. We don't have to go into it too much, but is it time for like a second edition on this? What does that look like to you? Is that something that's on your radar? I feel like Sophie and Bruce are doing such a good job with Live View that. I don't know if I would want to write a book about it because I feel like there's really great content about that already. Yeah, very fair. I I do think that one thing that's often overlooked when people are starting Live View is like if you don't have the mental model of how channels work, it can feel like magic with with Live View. And as soon as you understand channels and you understand like what goes behind the application that needs to power all the real time stuff, I feel like Live View. You, you become like a better programmer that's using LiveView. So I still recommend it. I mean, I'm a little bit biased, but I was doing a startup before where I'm at now and it didn't work out, but I did everything in LiveView basically. So I had like 18 months of building a LiveView app. It was fairly large by the end. And so I am familiar with like, all right, building a LiveView app in production, every possible case you could possibly hit, like whether it's a UI specific pattern, finding new patterns for the UI, or finding ways of moving data around. I hit all of that. And having the foundation in channels and understanding that really helped me a lot. It, it wasn't magic. Like, LiveView was never magic through that whole process yeah. because I understood that. So I still recommend it. I, I could see having a better a better chapter on LiveView, maybe a chapter or two, but I really do feel like it's a specialized enough tool that a full book dedicated to it, like what Sophie and Bruce are doing, is probably the right answer and is not something that I would I would go into. Gotcha. Okay, so your real-time Phoenix book paired with the LiveView book that Sophie and Bruce are writing, paired with maybe this new book would be a good introduction <laughs> and like evolution for like, okay, like so, so your new book that you're writing for a Rubyist intros to elixir and then if you want to dive into you know specific things that's unique about elixir and phoenix you can you can do real-time phoenix or you can go straight to like live view you know if that's what you want to do uh, but all these books kind of complement each other all right so i skirted around it but what is your new book going to be about what is what's the idea here right i mean i i know it's in the title but what what are are there targets here are there specific kinds of rubyists that you're looking for yeah so the book from Ruby to Elixir 
is targeted, you know, people obviously that are coming from Ruby. And basically the way that that looks in the book is as we're covering a topic, maybe we're covering about, you know, gen servers. And so we want to talk a little bit about how, you know, gen servers sort of feel like objects a little bit, but they're not really. So it's like, how are they different? What, you know, what would that look like in Ruby versus an Elixir? I initially had thought about ways of making it even more Ruby focused by saying like, all right, here's one project written in Ruby and one written in Elixir. And like, we're going to build them side by side. But ultimately for, I'm, I'm trying to write a, a little bit of a shorter book, like 150 to 175 pages, not a 250 pager like the last one. And so I did cut some of that. So it's a little, you know, it's definitely 90% 95% Elixir, and then a little bit of Ruby is used just to bring familiarity with the topic so people don't feel like they're just jumping into everything fresh. Honestly, when I talk about it, I often think, uh, well, it is from Ruby to Elixir. There's marketing there. There's the the contents there. But really, it's it's sort of like from OO to Elixir, or like from another you know, Ruby-adjacent language to Elixir. You would probably have the same benefits in a lot of ways. Well, one of the things I like, I think it's helping to fill a gap, which I'm very happy to see that that there's an answer for this. I've seen a number of times where people would take that first stab at Elixir, and I think it's, it really comes down to the mental model is so foreign that it feels so uncomfortable that they just kind of bail. And like you talked about your own journey, maybe having a couple false starts. I know when I first started with it, I was following along with the book. It was a false start, and then I ended up picking it up again later with a different book, and that really got me there. So I think there is a lot of opportunity for it to help people make that bridge, right? Because nobody likes feeling like that you're completely incompetent, right? That's part of the whole, I'm new at something, I'm, I'm, I'm a newbie here, and I have to embrace that. But it's like, it's so different from the OO model that people are familiar with. I'm curious to hear how you saw that this was a need and like kind of what drove your reason for creating this? The biggest thing that made me want to write this particular book is in a lot of the social places where I'm at, I do see a lot of people coming specifically from Ruby into Elixir. It seems to be the largest influx of developers and there's reasons for that. And I think a lot of it has to do with positioning and that's just sort of how Elixir has positioned itself over time. I, I sort of wanted to write another book as I was leaving the one startup. I actually wasn't expecting to go start a new thing so quickly. And so I was like, oh, let me write a book as sort of like a buffer to, to figure things out. So I wanted to write something thinking about this Ruby influx that it just seemed like a natural thing to, to write about. You know, as I think about the actual content, because I, I do believe you're right that there are other books out there. I'd say that there, I don't know if there's a beginner book that's come out in the last like two or three years. I think a lot of them, like the Phoenix one, four book is, I would say a beginner book. That's good. Obviously you have Elixir in action. And I think a new edition of that came out recently. That's sort of like the gold standard for you're coming into Elixir fresh. And so there are really good books out there. And I think just having some different approaches to the the topic will help different people. So this particular book takes something that isn't really seen in the other books, 
by saying, all right, when you build a Rails application, like most Rails applications still are, all right, you got Rails, you got all the adjacent things like Active Record and whatnot. You're going to have probably Sidekick like through an active job type of facade, but you might be using Sidekick for your actual job system. You're going to be deploying it in a very particular way. Like you have this familiarity with the Rails way, bringing that over as a familiar point and saying, all right, here's how you can build that type of application. I think it's a totally valid thing to build that type of application in Elixir by saying, all right, you're going to use Phoenix for your sort of web piece of it. You're going to use Obin. You're going to have ways to make HTTP requests. You're going to have ways to send emails. All of these different things are not really covered in other books. And so I think that this approach might be useful for other people. This is the type of thing that's useful to me because when I'm reading something, I really need to see, all right, how is this going to manifest itself? Like not just theory, but show me like, all right, this is how you actually do the application. And that is what this book tries to bring. Well, I do want to talk more about some of the content that you're going to be covering in this book. But before I get in there, I wanted to address the idea of it being a beta book and just what does that mean? Like if it's available for purchase right now, but it's considered beta. So if I were to go check this out right now, what does beta mean for what I'm going to see and find there? Pragmatic. And I think other book publishers are doing this now too in the tech space have a beta program, which is effectively like when the book is 60% done, you can put it into beta and your goal is to get it finished within a certain timeline. Now, that isn't always the case. Some beta books go longer. So Prag is pretty good to work with. They're like, you know, very author friendly. So they're not like pushing you and driving you to a specific date. But the expectation is that you're writing chapters maybe every two to three weeks. I'm a little behind on that right now. Sorry, Jackie. (laughs) Where I'm at, I think five five of the chapters, no, six chapters are done. So that's a 60% out of 10 chapters. And I might change some things in those chapters. I already, I have some notes from the, from the reviewers that I haven't addressed yet that really might be a little bit of content shuffling. I might move something around, but I'd say the content is 97% going to stay the same between beta and published. So you're, you're basically getting the same content as a published book. You're just getting it four to five months in advance and, you know, new content's going to trickle in over that time period. There, there are people that like that sort of thing, and they like purchasing that early. And getting feedback from those people is really useful because it makes it into the final published version where it's more difficult to change things. Yeah, that makes sense. I've seen that with like the Phoenix book. There was a early access beta aspect to that, and I, I remember getting notified that there were new versions available. And you mentioned other publishers like Manning. They have Meep, which is the early access program. So I just want people to be aware of like what that means and that if I purchase it beta now, I will still get the final finished version when it comes out, right? Yep, correct. Yeah, you just you basically get new versions as they release. And then one day you get an email that says, hey, production 1.0 version is released. And that is the final version of the book. So in the outline of your book, I noticed that there was one area you say build cities not skyscrapers and that sounds kind of interesting can you elaborate what that means this has nothing to do with microservices so sometimes the the skyscraper analogy is used for microservices so this is not it now i've had this in my head for 
a year or two now as I've been thinking about Elixir and really people will like ask me, well, why, why are you doing Elixir? Why are you doing a startup in Elixir? You know, whatever it might be. And so I often think I, I sort of go to this as my analogy and effectively what it means is when I was writing other applications in other languages, I felt like I was building this really deep stack application where you sort of come in the bottom floor, if you will, you go all the way down the stack and you fetch your data, you're doing your manipulations, you're doing all the stuff that you need to do. And then you sort of unwind that and you go back out the same door. And it it very much felt like there's a path that an application goes down. And if you just want to branch out and go down a different path, it was very, very difficult to build applications that way. And so a very trivial example of this is let's say that I wanted to have a cache in memory for a hot piece of data in an application. It's very difficult to do that in other languages because a lot of language runtimes are just not really designed for that in particular. And so I could write a cache that, you know, checks when a key is used, whether it's valid or not, and then, uh, you know, grabs a new piece of data otherwise. But it's very hard to write a cache that has its own data lifecycle where I can say, all right, you know, I, I want to actually evict things proactively. I want to make sure the data is actually kept up to date, not on demand, but actually real time as data changes. That's like a whole, I'm describing a whole nother application right there. I'm saying like, I want to have effectively a cache application that responds to requests from outside the system that can change its data, that can have its own data lifecycle, all these things. It's just not something you can do in other languages. And particularly coming from Ruby, that was something that I couldn't do. And in Elixir, I can go and build that. I can use a gen server and effectively build a mini application that has an API, which is how it responds to genserver.call. It has its own data lifecycle. So I could use like a timer or something like that to say, all right, every five seconds, I'm going to check the state of the data and make some changes based on that. It can respond to outside requests because I could use Phoenix PubSub and I could subscribe to a channel of a hot piece of data that changes and I can just respond to that right in that process. And then finally, I can have requests come in to say, all right, give me this cache piece and it can request it from the cache and then have appropriate action if it's not there. You can build an entire application of these smaller applications that just do very specific things. And so that's why I think you're building a city. You're building many applications that all are under the same under the same roof, and they work together to get your outcome. And that's very difficult to do in other languages. And it has completely changed how I view programming in really any language, but especially in Elixir. That seems to highlight another area that you're going to talk about where at least in my brain, when you're talking about like building cities, not skyscrapers, the idea of like data flowing through a city, right? The the traffic flows inside of a, a city. And I guess, I guess the scrapers, scrapers are like many cities you could think about it. They're just vertical. <laughs> but the, the thing that hooked me into Elixir was the thought train of, of following the data. The data was more important than creating objects that emulate life or in, in some way, right? And so that's pretty cool. And so just to clarify, you do have like a chapter, it looks like where you talk about like working with data, it's like data structure kind of stuff. 
But the other part that I thought was pretty cool that hooked me into Elixir was pattern matching. Do you talk about pattern matching? Yes, for sure. Of course. I think there's a whole, yeah, whole, ch- whole chapter dedicated to pattern matching. This is when I'm describing why I would use Elixir, I'd say like pattern matching is a little bit of a superpower where it changes how you do control flow in programming and programming is mostly control flow. So all of a sudden you have this thing that can completely change how you do that and it changes how you code. And it is a little dense to get into initially. Now, you basic pattern matching is, is very simple. You know, you can extract some keys from a map. Most people can get that pretty quickly. You know, I, I obviously do that in the book, but then going into some more things like multiple function heads are just a form of pattern matching. It all gets transformed into a big case statement effectively. And that evaluates and, and your multiple functions are actually one function that use pattern matching. And so that's a, an advanced form of pattern matching or doing a complex data structure extraction where, you know, the, the structure of the data and you want to extract out, you know, the first item of a sub key of a map that's inside of a list. I don't know. It's like, that's something that you could do with pattern matching. That would maybe you shouldn't do that. But, you know, <laughs> having those advanced topics as well. Yeah, I remember when I first got that with pattern matching, especially it was that case where I had like a map and I was matching on these nested data structures, like a map within a map within a map, you know, like this whole big nested thing. Because I was talking to this external API that I didn't control and getting that data back and being able to match on these deep things, having the comparison of this is how I write it in Elixir versus this is how I had to write it in Ruby. And it's like, oh my gosh, this is so awesome. Elixir is the best that I can do this with pattern matching. It's so expressive, right? It's just so much more compact and clear about what is happening. And that was like when I really fell in love with pattern matching. Yeah. Okay. So just to be on the other side of the fence here for just a second, right? When I first came into Elixir, pattern matching was pretty unique. Uh, Ruby didn't have it. JavaScript had something similar, and it, but it was still kind of new. I'm showing my age here, maybe. that I think it may have been a beta. Talking about destructuring? Yes. Right, right. So in JavaScript, you can destructure uh, keys out of there, and it's even a shorter syntax. It's not quite pattern matching, right? But it's destructuring. Yeah, anyway, that's so that was a, that was a thing that I was seeing at the time. A functional React was really popular at the time that I was picking up Elixir. And so destructuring is a, a big part of that. And and just to add add a note there, other languages are bringing pattern matching in, right? So Ruby has that now. Yes. Yes. That's where I was going with that. But the difference is Elixir it's built in. It is conventional. You're going to see it everywhere. With these other languages, it's like a a different way to express it, but it's not like standard. It's it's well, I don't know if standard's the right word. It's not the the way that you write that. Destructuring and and of JavaScript's definitely like conventional. You're gonna see that everywhere. But now that everything's on ES6, which I think is where that came in, you're not gonna find it in, in Ruby. Like if you're just browsing Ruby code, you're probably not gonna find like pattern matching in there. It was I, in my opinion, introduced way too late to become like a, a real way of coding there, though it is possible. You're right. And one thing that you said really is how I would address it also, which is it is built into Elixir. It's not just a feature of the language. And I think functions are a great example of that, where pattern matching is in is in functions. That's like completely different part of the programming language than when you're in like the body of code. And you can do that in some languages, but just not to the extent where it's like, 
all pat basically all pattern matching is supported everywhere in Elixir, and that's the real power of it is that you see it in all these places just because it's supported like everywhere, which is awesome. Yeah, you're right. You know, I hadn't art- articulated that, but yeah, in a lot of Ruby pattern matching examples, it's it's in the body of the of the method. You don't really do it in the in the function uh, method signature. And just as a note, though, that is what Erlang is doing at the end of the day. So when yeah. everything gets compiled <laughs> compiled down, multiple function heads become a case statement. So I, I could see a world where you know that syntax is added into Ruby because it really is a syntactic sugar for multiple function heads just becoming a case that could be added into Ruby. And I think that would be pretty awesome. Personally, I think there might be some, some baggage that has to get addressed for that to happen. And that's, that may, that may be too big of an obstacle, but yeah. All right. Okay. So moving, moving on from pattern matching, which is, you know, like I, I, I'm going to exaggerate, but it's life changing. <laughs> the big part about Ruby that makes it enjoyable, uh, other than the, you know, the, the enjoyable syntax, the simple syntax that Elixir does share some of, uh, so it does translate a bit even though the underneath is like completely different. The other big part about the joy of Ruby is the ecosystem. Some of this is is purely based on, you know, Ruby's been around a little longer, picked up a lot of like steam in the web world, picked up a lot of gems, a lot of like niche gems specifically, you know, like if you had to do that one thing in a dark corner somewhere that like 10 other people in the world have done, chances are one of those 10 people have already released a gem. And a gem in Ruby world is just like a, a hex package, right? It's just a, a way to add some code to your your project. And that ecosystem in Ruby is 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 rich. And so if you're looking for job systems, you're probably picking up Active Job or Sidekick or one of the many options out there. If you're picking up a web framework, you're probably picking up Rails, but there's also other ones out there, a simpler one like Sinatra. There's uh yeah, and there's more. If you're looking up uh, like data stuff, you're probably looking at Active Record, but there's other ones like ROM. If you're picking up uh, HTTP adapters, there's like plenty of those, I'm sure, uh, in the Ruby world. How do you translate that? How are you picking up some of those like non Elixir specific, you know, non core language specific that that ecosystem oriented kind of packages? How how are you choosing to pick up and talk about some of those packages and, and introduce them to like the Ruby world folks? I would say that most of the packages introduced in the book are fairly mainstream. And so these are things that would be in the majority of Elixir applications, at least that are doing a web application. So I agree that Ruby's ecosystem is probably its biggest strength. I mean, other than the like the language itself is a joy to use, and I really like the language. But like you're saying, the, the ecosystem is great there. And basically, the strategy for the book is to say, all right, here is the most popular data library in Ruby is going to be Active Record. All right, here's Ecto. And here's how they sort of compare. And here's how we're going to do stuff with Ecto. And it actually doesn't feel that different once you actually start using it, even though it's it's very different in how it's structured. Same thing for Phoenix and, you know, Phoenix versus Rails, Oban versus Sidekick. And so basically it's just like one-to-one comparison between a package in Elixir and a gem in Ruby. And I, I, I'm not trying to give a bunch of options, I guess I'd say. So I'm trying to be like, all right, here is the one library that I would recommend for this task. And 
here's how it compares to Ruby versus saying, all right, here's what the ecosystem is. You could have your choice of these three things because you don't have to use Phoenix if you're coming in. You could just use plug if you wanted to. And, you know, (laughs) and I've done that for some stuff, but I just don't want to overwhelm people. So I'm sort of like, all right, here is what I'm going to recommend in the book and just give them like a straight path through there. Yeah. Kind of charting out that blessed path, right? Like this is you follow this and you, you'll be pretty good. You, you can, as you learn more, you can branch out, but like, this will get you there. Exactly. And, and that focus of, as you learn more, you can branch out is exactly sort of the, the point of, of the book in a lot of ways. Cause that's where I think people get overwhelmed. All right. Open opens a great choice for job processing, backgrounding, you know, tasks kind of, kind of library. I do want to highlight a key difference here though. Sidekick and most bigger like background job processing libraries typically leverage something like a key value store like Redis for storing that kind of stuff. But Oban doesn't. I'm curious, do you talk about that? Or is that a, a detail that shouldn't matter? Uh, it definitely does matter. I mean, that's a pretty big difference. I don't mind that Oban uses, let's just say it uses Postgres for its store. And and Sidekick really is all Redis space. I think Mike Perham tried to get sidekick or something similar away from redis once or twice and is like all right he's like fully committed to to redis as the as the store for that and so there's some big differences in how postgres runs versus how redis runs you look at it capability wise you can do richer things with postgres like that's just factual you get transaction control all these different things that are really powerful you just don't get that in redis but redis's performance is pretty dramatically better for job systems than Postgres is. So I would say that I'm still a little skeptical on Postgres as backing a job store if you're in the like hundreds of millions to like billions of jobs per day. Like you would have you're going to have to be good at Postgres to manage that at scale. And I would even say you know, I would start looking at things like do I need to have a separate Postgres instance for my jobs system? But now I'm losing transaction control across that. So it's like there's these pros and cons, and that's just because the richness that Postgres gives you, unique jobs as an example of that, you know, that that can be done with an index. That's something that comes with a cost, and that cost is probably fine for 99.9% of people. But there'll be, and that's why I, I would recommend it. But for some people, it's like, yeah, you're gonna have to, you're gonna have to know a little bit about Postgres to operationalize. Yeah. All right. Cool. Yeah. But scaling isn't like the primary issue here. This is a book for introducing it to, you know, beginners. Uh, So that's a great recommendation. I agree. The other one I want to talk about is Tesla. Okay. Now this has been a pain point in (laughs) Elixir world, at least in my view. Pain is probably too harsh of a word. It's been tedious to adopt some frameworks or libraries that needs to make an HTTP request, which is pretty common. When I entered into the Elixir world, HTTP poison was the standard, and it still kind of is, as far as I know. But I know that there's other clients out there. Mint, Finch, Mojito, I think, is one. There's a bunch of them now, right? Why Tesla? Why why are you going with that one? This could change. I don't think it will, though. But just as a point of clarity, I actually use HTTP poison in my app right now. Would I recommend it to most people? Probably not. I think it's mainly a relic of me using, I can't even think of what it was called in Ruby. It was like HTTP party. Yeah. So it's like a relic of me using HTTP party for multiple years and then using HTTP poison for multiple years and then new clients have come out. So 
I, I do think that this is the least solidified library in the in the book. The reason I chose Tesla is because it's almost like a meta library for building an HTTP client. So you can use different adapters if you want. Like if you wanted to use the like Poison style HTTP adapter, you can use that. If you want to use Finch with Tesla, you can use that. So you can sort of swap out the actual client that you want to use. It has a rich expressive layer for middleware, which is really important if you're building a client. And so if I was recommending that someone's like, hey, I don't I don't really have anything I want to use, what would I pick up? I'd probably say Tesla because of that. It's like very flexible. You can sort of build the HTTP client the way that you want rather than just making HTTP requests. So that's how I use HTTP poison is I'm literally just making requests and I'm parsing them myself. I'm setting up the headers myself. But that's not really a, probably a good solution in the grand scheme of things. You should probably have a little bit of a more intelligent solution for for it. And I think that's what Tesla is aiming to solve. Gotcha. Okay. Well, I don't want to start any flame wars here, but I might <laughs> recommend looking at REC, R-E-Q, because it does a lot of that feature stuff that you're talking about, building workflows and composable requests and you know stuff like that. That is the other one that I was looking at and thinking about whether it gets pulled in or not. I, I do think that this is one of the challenges of a book, right? Is 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 looking at rec, it's like, all right, we're on 0.3 version. Yeah. And so will there be breaking changes before it goes one? Will the book become irrelevant? I do feel like Tesla is stable enough that I think it'll it'll stand up over over time. Yeah, hey, that's that's a good consideration. I got one more question for you. And this one's this one's a little bit deep, though. I don't know if you're ready for it. Let's go. Let's let's do it. Okay. So Ruby three, Ruby three. All right. I I left Ruby back in two two something two dot one or whatever, and it evolved pretty quickly up to like two dot seven, I think, and then and then three came out, and three was a big a big not rewrite, but a big improvement in performance of Ruby. I think three by three was their goal, right? They wanted three times the the performance in Ruby three. Interestingly, I think their benchmark was actually an NES emulator, which is which is kind of cool. <laughs> I thought that was interesting. I don't, I don't think that ended up that way. I think they they got close enough and they were like, all right, we're going to call it done. But anyway, all that to say that Ruby 3 introduced or started the work for introducing more ways to handle memory management or multi-process kinds of activities, right? So that's one of the big paradigm shifting things when you're when you're learning elixirs this whole concept of otp and starting tasks these memory isolated processes that deal with their own variables for the most part we'll, we'll oversimplify here but they deal with their own memory and then when their their task is done they are garbage collected away and there's no global lock right there's this big whole system freeze that has to clean up all the all the trash that the program has left right and ruby ruby is, has had that and so Ruby 3 introduces two concepts, fibers and ractors, R actors. I think that's what that means. Do you dive into this at all? I'd be surprised if you do. But tell me about why now for Elixir, when Ruby might start trying to solve some of those, those issues that Elixir does uh, natively with Herlang. I covered this a little bit. I think that these are both pretty new, so it's hard to cover Fibers have been around a little bit longer than Ruby actors have been around. Ractors, it's hard to talk about them in practice because they don't necessarily manifest yet in like major libraries. I know within the last like year, 
Active Records started supporting Fiber-based concurrency for the Active Record pool, which means you can use Fibers in your Rails app and it won't like totally blow up. <laughs> All right, well, let's back up here for a second. Let's differentiate what is a Fiber and what is a Ractor. Fiber is effectively Ruby's attempt at having a different scheduling method for running concurrent code. So the traditional Ruby approach of running concurrent code is you basically spin up threads, which are operating system level threads. They're not like green threads or something like that. And these threads can share memory. In Ruby, you can also do forking. You can do like a multi-process situation as well. But if you're looking at concurrency, you're really looking at threads. And threads have a lot of problems with them because you don't have control like ruby doesn't have control over how those threads actually execute so fiber is the attempt of taking a little bit of control and saying all right you can execute concurrent code in a different way and have more guarantees because it's not just deferred to the operating system it's actually using like a, a preemptive scheduler they have the concept of yielding and resuming a fiber it's totally focused on the runtime aspect of it. If you look at memory management in a fiber, it's still shared memory. So the challenges you get from shared memory in a thread are still going to be present in a fiber. That's why Active Record had to change how they support fibers because, you know, historically, multi-threaded libraries had had an issue in Ruby that became fixed and most things support multi-threading. And then, you know, now Fiber comes along and it's like, all right, now we have to support Fiber. So you have this concurrency method. Now, Fiber in practice, I don't think is going to transform your developer experience in Ruby. It might give you different runtime characteristics slightly, and it's an improvement. It's like a foundational improvement that's necessary for other things. So an example of the other thing that I do think is transformative is Ractor, which I do believe stands for Ruby Actor. That has seen even less adoption because it's still very new in the grand scheme of things. But the general idea of this is not just having a different execution mode and how it's running concurrently, but also not having shared memory. So the big advantage in Elixir when it comes to processes is you don't have shared memory. So a whole class of bugs that can happen, like race conditions at the like operating system level type of issues just don't happen because they're often boiled down to shared memory. So I really think this is great. I'm excited to see where the Ruby community goes with this over time. I do think it's a foundational change. And that means that libraries are going to lag behind. They're going to adopt it differently. You're going to have different patterns that emerge over time, just like libraries in Elixir use processes foundationally different from each other. And so, but patterns emerge. So as these patterns emerge, I'm really interested in it. Like you asked, like, why, why Elixir, if Ruby's doing this? One thing I would say, you know, looking at this in particular is I think it's just good to have choice and good to have different options. I've sort of taken a very peaceful approach with the Ruby community where I'm not like, oh, I'm not, I actually, I actually don't care. I'm, I'm trying to be like, hey, here's Elixir. Here's how you can learn it. You know, if you want to use it, that's great. If you just want to learn it to learn something, like it'll probably change a little bit how you view programming. And that's a positive benefit of this book. But I'm not trying to like necessarily win you over. I'm just trying to show you what Elixir can do. 
And so for me, I if if Ruby really takes off and and Rubyus really benefit from Raptors in this actor style primitive, I think it's awesome. I could see it now. You know, I, every time I go to a Rust library, that's been <laughs> some something that's been rewritten in Rust. It, they, they've got the tagline. It's like it's almost like AI always generates these things that it's blazingly fast, right? The blazingly fast because it's <laughs> it's written in Rust. I can see it now with these Ruby gems. It is blazingly fast because it is leveraging the Raptor primitives, as, as he called it. So it's, I can just see it. Okay, well, that is that is a wonderful introduction to fibers and Raptors. So I appreciate that. Thank you for outlining the differences there. We'll see how it evolves. I don't know, man. I think I think having like Erlang in there since the 80s and Elixir just providing that good framework on top of uh, writing enjoyable code and pattern matching the heck out of my stuff. <laughs> I just think those are all built in and core. And I have my doubts that Ruby is going to is going to be able to transform its culture into something that can be compared to to Elixir. I'm very excited that they're going to have that option. Hopefully that they'll have that mature option there. Well, what I think is interesting is this idea of Raptors, right, where there's no shared memory. Then you get into the whole same concept that we have where you have to pass data and there's data copying to keep separate. So then you're starting to teach the Ruby community some of these fundamentals. And then you're like, oh, those same concepts translate really well over to Elixir. So maybe it just eases on the, the on-ramp, you know, kind of like let them do some of the foundational understanding and, and reasons for why I want this. Yeah. We are about out of time, Steve, but I do want to ask a, a little bit more about like you wrote this book or are continuing and actually actively working on writing this book because you saw there was a gap, particularly around OO mindset and making that transition. And so I, I think that's a valuable addition. Are there any other gaps that you just see that are similar in this area that the Elixir community would be benefited by filling? That's a tough one. Like, I don't feel like there's major gaps in my, like, workflow as I'm working on things. I, I personally feel satisfied with, with a lot of things. I would say the one gap that I'm excited that some people are working on right now is shoring up tooling a little bit. It's a difficult problem, and I'm excited to see multiple people working on it. I think historically it's been, like, there's been one library to do a particular thing in tooling for whatever, like, you know, all the different things that need to happen, formatting code checking, I, for lack of a better word, language server. Yeah, right now there's multiple language server efforts. Yes. Yep. So I'm, I'm excited about that. And I think that tooling is super important because if you're a beginner coming in, especially from another language where you know how things work and you exactly what you said earlier, you don't like feeling like you don't know what's going on. And when tooling issues happen, it's very difficult to understand what's going on unless you actually understand like the language itself and maybe how the tooling is put together. And so just having rock solid tooling that always works and gives people options, I think that will help beginners coming in because they're less likely to hit a frustration point. And hitting frustration points is where you just bail out and say, well, I was just giving it a try and I'm I'm not really having fun because I hit XYZ. I'm just gonna put this put this to the side for now. And I think the the more of those moments that we can reduce, the higher chance that, you know, beginners coming into the language are gonna have success with it. Nice. I like that. So Steve, what's next for you? Like I know you're actively working on this book and you've actively got a, a new company that you're working on. So like what are you doing next? Like what's the next steps? 
Yeah, I don't. I, I'm just. I'm. In, I'm almost in execution mode right now, right? Where it's like I need to finish writing the book, which again I've been a little bad with. I need to put a big effort towards that. But really, starting a company was was a big thing for me. It was always my goal when I was at Salesloft. Everything I did was centered around it. And so now I'm almost in this like execution mode where I'm not really looking ahead. I'm sort of doing the thing I wanted to do, but it, I need to do it well. And so that's all. That's really what I'm focused on. Well, if people want to get in touch with you or just follow the progress of the book or anything else, like where should they go to do that? Unfortunately, my answer is Twitter. (laughs) Sorry to people that are not a fan. It's just still the platform that that I'm on the most for these types of things. And I think you'll you'll, you'll have it linked, I'm sure, with the show, but it's Twitter and then it's Yoda with with four O's and four A's. That's my... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Sometimes I post on my on my website, but I've been a little bad about that too. So there's some great Elixir content there, stephenbussy.com with a PH. But I haven't posted that regularly recently, and I, I probably won't in the next couple months. So, uh, you know, there's some good stuff there, but I'm not posting new stuff too frequently. So I guess one way people could follow the progress of the book is to buy it, and they'll get regular emails as more content comes out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, when it comes to the book, really, I mean, there's probably going to be like, four progress updates between now and the release of it. So there's not too much to follow along with, honestly. It's just sort of my goal. I'm I'm doing a training at ElixirConf in September, September 5th, I believe, for an in-person training. It's from Ruby to Elixir, effectively. And so I really want, and I need need to do some work if I want to make this happen. I really want to have the book ready by then. And especially if I could have physical copies, that'd be awesome to like give out to people at the class, but that's my goal. Don't know if that'll happen, but that's sort of my, my, my date that I'm setting for myself is like, can I have this thing done and ready by September? Well, thanks Steve for talking with us. I really do appreciate just catching up and hearing your perspective and kind of what you're seeing and where we maybe in the Elixir community can help welcome and be supportive of people coming from other communities, right? Like from the Ruby community in particular you're talking about, but I do agree that a lot of these same concepts just apply and they're generalized to lots of OO languages. So if I'm, if I'm coming from Python or maybe Java, you know, a lot of the same types of concepts map over. Thanks so much for having me, Mark and David. It's been awesome. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir.